Shalom and welcome to the Gospel According to Moses in the book of Genesis. We're on Lesson 69 right now. And once again, we're on an event in Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, that's so full, <laughs> so powerful, that it takes us all the way to Jesus. We're dealing with the dream of Jacob. It's, it's such an event. Now, we're in our third lesson of this dream. It started in 67, went to 68, now we're in 69. And just to let you know that in 68, I said I wanted to cover four points, and we covered three. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking a look at that fourth point now here in 69. Once again, we're going to put the Bible into its historical context. Now, we get asked as we put the Bible in its historical context, who wrote this stuff? Who wrote the Torah? And I know there's a scholarly debate, and I know it cannot be proved, it cannot be proved that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. There's arguments for and against. I believe the arguments for Moses writing this are a lot stronger than the ones that say that Moses did not write it. But I'm going to stand on the very words of God. Jesus, in Luke 24, verse 27, and Luke 24, verse 44, read the whole chapter to put it in context. Jesus saying is saying, Moses is the author. He's God. Now that's good enough for me. Now if Moses wrote it, who were the first ones to hear it? Who were the first ones to hear Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? Well, it's the Hebrews coming out of Egypt. So we have to understand this Torah wasn't written to Cain and Abel, wasn't written to Noah and his sons and his daughter-in-laws and his wife, wasn't written to Abraham and Sarah, wasn't written to Joseph or his brothers. The first audience were the Hebrews, the newly freed, freed people, freed from slavery in Egypt. Now, it's proven that they assimilated into the Egyptian culture. This probably started happening right after Joseph's death that we read about at the end of Genesis. Now, I deal with this in detail in the Exodus series, the Gospel According to Moses' Exodus. So, I'm going to give you the link to Exodus, Lesson 4, Part 2, which you should study because, again, to know that the Hebrews assimilated into the Egyptian culture, bought into the pagan gods of the Egyptians and the mythology and their worldview, is so important so that it helps us understand the Torah. The Hebrews bought into the wrong story. And so for them, when they hear this story of Jacob, this event in Jacob's life, and especially about the latter, what did they understand? Guys, for us, for us Christians and Jews in the 21st century, today, we, it completely escapes us. Why? because we weren't deeply immersed in the daily life in, the, in, in Egypt or in the Egyptian mythology. 
we, we would have no understanding of the pyramid texts. They would. The pyramid texts that first appeared in 2500 BC in the old kingdom of Egypt and was even prevalent in Moses' day, in the days of the Exodus. The Hebrews understood it. So for them, the ladder in Jacob's dream is powerfully related to the pyramid text. We need to see this. And once we understand this connection to Egypt, I have to tell you, once we understand what it meant to the Hebrews coming out of Egypt, it gives us an understanding how God is trying to teach us this is a connection to Jesus himself. Now, Jesus did connect himself to the dream. His words in John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 52, he says, He's the ladder. He's the way to the dwelling of the Lord. So, are you ready to study? <laughs> are you sure? Come, let's go. Okay, that's number three. Remember I said there were four things that I wanted to discuss. Let me come back to, we're going to come back to the fourth one right now. And this one just is, oh, it's so cool. <laughs> anyway, Genesis 28, and I'm going to read verses 11 and 12, and then 17. So Jacob, in 28.11, and he encountered a certain place, and he had to spend the night there, for the sun had come in. And he took one of the stones of the place and set it at his head and laid down in that place. And he dreamt. And here a ladder was set up on the earth. And there's actually a debate whether it's ladder or stairs. Very interesting. I won't go down that route. We'll accept as ladder. But it could be stairs as well. Um, it's top reaching the heavens. And here the messengers of God were going up and down on it. And then I'm going to go to verse 17. And Jacob is responding to the dream. He was awestruck and said, How awe-inspiring is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now, one purpose of this class is based upon John 5.39, Jesus says, all the scripture testifies of me. He said it between 24 to 30 A.D. So therefore, where is Jesus in the Torah, first five books of the Bible, the prophets, Psalms, Job, etc.? Number two, who are the first people to read, or at least have it read to them, the books of Moses? Moses supposedly dies on the plains of Moriah, if he's dead, the Torah is finished. So therefore, who are the people who get to see the Torah first? The Hebrews coming out of Egypt. How do they listen to the story? They just came out of Egypt. And, and God is inspiring Moses to write this. Now, we're not going to deal with this now. I can't. Okay, In a couple of years, when we get to Exodus... 
God willing, I hope it's this year. We're going to get to the end of Genesis and the beginning, uh, end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, and I'm going to prove to you unequivocally, unequivocally, that the Hebrews assimilated into the Egyptian culture. We're going to look at that intensely. It is so important to understand the rest of the Torah. It, it is critical. And Egypt starts in Genesis 38 with the story of Joseph. So Egypt is huge in this. So they turned from God. They forgot Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at least the majority of the Hebrews. I'm assuming that Moses' family probably were religious and the stories continued from one generation to the next, even while they were in Egypt, but not everybody. So for now, I want to say, let's accept that fact. I'll prove it to you later. So how does God teach his people? Is he going to come to them with rabbinical commentary? Because I can just see some Hebrew coming out of Egypt, raising his hand. Um, what's a rabbi? Okay. Second of all, what's a Torah? Torah is a phrase the rabbis use for the first five books of the Bible. They didn't call it the Torah. They call it the books of Moses. So you'd say, well, we're going to teach you the Torah. What's that? Well, it's the books of Moses. What's that? Well, it's those parchments that Moses wrote. Those? Yeah. We've got to go back in history. We've got to place these words in their proper place. They're immersed in Egypt. So how is God going to reach them? By telling them about the temple? About telling them about the Jordan River? They don't know the Jordan River from Lake Superior. Come on. I mean, you're going to teach them about kosher food? What's that? They don't know anything about kosher food. That happens at Sinai. They know none of this. So God meets us, ladies and gentlemen, where we're at. He uses culture and customs, even today, to try to reach us where we're at. There was an article that I came up with, and I just, this is astounding. This is where I'm going. The title of the article is The Gods of the Egyptians or Studies in Egyptian Mythology by Dr. E.A. Wallace Budge. Okay, very English name, don't you think? No. Dr. Budge, oh, good show. And Dr. Budge was the keeper of the Egyptian and Assyrian antiquities, you see, in the British Museum. Ah, good show. Anyway, he's got this paper that he wrote in 1904, and it's multi-pages long. And in there, he's referring to the pyramid texts. Now, the pyramid texts is what you would find is they are texts that came and were found in the pyramids in the Old Kingdom, dated to 2400 to 2300 B.C. They are the oldest religious documents on the face of the earth. The oldest. It's amazing. There was no Bible then. Okay, The Bible does not, starting to read it, to 1400 B.C. That's when Moses is around. Now, what happens in the pyramid test, now I'm capsulizing this for you, is when you die as an Egyptian, and what you're hoping for is this, that you lived a righteous life, and you'd be given 
a ladder so that you can climb the ladder to the place where the gods abide. In Hebrew, Beit El. Guess exactly what Beit El means. In the tombs, you can actually go into a... I can't wait to go back. I'm looking for this. I want to go back to the Egyptian tombs and I want to go back into the uh, Valley of the Kings. In the Egyptian tombs on the hieroglyphs, you'll find ladders indicating these ladders of the gods for the righteous deceased so that the ladders are set up so you can get into the paradise and get to the tree of life. Did you hear what I just said? Egypt had paradise and the tree of life. They were the first kids on the block to have it. Matter of fact, this is interesting to me. I don't know what to do with this. Horus, who's the falcon-headed god. So if you go into the Egyptian gods and goddesses, he's got the falcon head. He holds up the ladder for those that have died. So he's holding up the ladder. What's interesting is this. Pharaoh, as king, he's God manifest. He's Horus. It's almost as if you're Egyptian, that the Son of God is holding up the ladder so you can climb into paradise to the place of the gods and dwell with the gods forever. That's Egyptian mythology. Now, did you hear what I just said? The Son of God, Pharaoh, who is God manifest, Horus, that's who he is in real life, is holding up the ladder. <laughs> so, Pharaoh, the son of Amun-Ra, the son of God, is holding up the ladder. Now, there's more pyramid tests. This goes on. Now, I... There, when you get into Egyptian mythology, it'll drive you crazy, okay, because who's the head god of the Egyptians? Well, it changes from town to town and from year to year, okay? If Amun-Ra is a god for a while, then it's Ptah. If it's not Ptah, it's somebody else. I mean, it, it, it's nuts. Because why? Because it's all based upon men's ideas and not the truth of God. So things change like crazy in Egyptian mythology. In another part of the pyramid text, it talks about Pharaoh when he's deceased, and he's got to reach the hidden place. And the hidden place is the abode of the gods. Okay? In Hebrew, Beit Elohim. That's what the Hebrew means. So therefore, is the Pharaoh going up to the temple of God? Of course not. The Hebrew just describes the place of the abode of the gods. Beit Elohim. Used exactly in G uh, Jacob's dream. Now, they didn't speak Hebrew then. So Pharaoh is going to come to the God, okay, as he wants to approach this hidden place. He comes to the God who has the emblem of the tree of life and who's the herald of heaven. And he comes through the gates of heaven. Stop. The gates of heaven are Egyptian. The gates of heaven are opened and the Pharaoh is given a ladder to climb up into paradise. That's Egyptian mythology. The Hebrews assimilated into the Egyptian culture. And they're reading this. They're hearing about Jacob. And he's, they're reading about his dream and a ladder that went up to heaven and the gates of heaven. They get it. Matter of fact, Dr. John Kareed who is an Egyptologist, a, theo the a theologian, a Bible historian, he wrote a commentary on Torah. 
And it is fantastic. I mean, this is almost like the JPS Torah commentary. Except he's Christian, so he takes us to Jesus. But as a Bible historian, and especially an Egyptologist, he says this about the gates. The idea of a gate at the entrance to heaven is a common motif in ancient Near Eastern thought. Not just in Egypt, okay, but all across the ancient Near East. For example, listen to this. One of the titles of the high priest of Thebes in Egypt is the opener of the gates of heaven. And the high priest of Thebes was in the temple of Karnak. The temple of Karnak is the temple of Amun-Ra. The number one god in the 18th dynasty. He, that would have been the god of Exodus. In addition, the Egyptians believed that doors uh, or a gateway in the east opened up into the fields of paradise. Wow. So imagine a Hebrew just out of Egypt. They're the ones who bought into the wrong story. Okay, They're worshipping the gods of Egypt. The Hebrews would be familiar with the ladder and the gates. They know this stuff. This is just common. But now, what is God trying to teach them in his Torah, in his instruction? Okay, he's saying, no, there is only one God. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there is a ladder. It is the way to me. Jacob saw it. He saw it in a dream. And all of a sudden, all of their beliefs in the mythology of Egypt are destroyed because God is coming against it directly. And remember, you can write this verse down, in Deuteronomy 32, 17, it's a very famous verse, God is telling all of Israel through Moses that the gods you worshipped were demons. So you must understand something. If this is what God is teaching us, is there power in Egyptian mythology? You better believe it. Something was working. It lasted for 4,000 years. So Yahweh provides a way to his abode. Yahweh provides a way, right? A ladder to Habet Elohim, the abode of God, the place of God. Because that's where he is. It's the way to the gate to be with Adonai. And then we read this. 1 John 47 through 51. 1 John 47 through 51. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said, said to him, Behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly. And in Hebrew, Amen, Amen. So if you want to know what Amen means, truly, truly, Amen, Amen. I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the sons of man. Who's the latter? Jesus, because he is referring to the story. They had no New Testament. Nathaniel, Philip, Peter, all of them are there, and they're, they're remembering the Torah. 
They're remembering the story. Ascending and descending on Jesus. We said, well, wait, that, that's true. Jesus is the way to the Father. He's the only way to the gate of the abode of God. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, I won't go to it right now, in 22 through 24, if you recall, Adam and Eve had not eaten from the tree of life. And God says, oops, they have not eaten from the tree of life because if they did, they would live forever in their sin. And out of love and compassion, God says, we got to kick them out of here. Otherwise, if by chance they eat from that, they're going to be in sin forever. Okay? So, he kicks them out and he puts two kerovim on either side to guard the way to paradise. The way is guarded. We can't get in. And now there's this ladder and this gate to the abode of Adonai. So, in Moses, we have the written Torah, and in Messiah, we have the living Torah. Jesus never takes away the written Torah. We had an interesting discussion today to try to say, that, and this was interesting, uh, uh, an individual... Um, in our discussion uh, over coffee, uh, was not really somebody that had studied the Torah, uh, not really somebody that you would call messianic. But this person said to me, you know what the Torah is like? I know it's not law. It's like a dad. It's like a dad sitting down with his son and telling him about life. And said, let me tell you about life, how to live a good life, how to live a life so that you're good. And by the way, I want to let you don't lie. That's not a good thing, okay? And then when you grow up, don't commit adultery. Not a really good thing, okay? Um, I really would like you to meet with me several times a year. Okay, they're called the feasts, okay? Appointed times. Please come and see me seven times a year, okay? Not once, seven times a year, okay? And so what's fascinating is that's the written Torah. That's instruction, okay? And I really like the way this guy put this today. It's like dad sitting down with his son and saying, let me tell you about life. I, I thought was so cool. So then what's the living word? Well, when you mess up, my instruction's not going to help. You need something more. You need the cross and the blood of Jesus when you mess up. I just love that picture. It really gave me a more firmer understanding of the Torah, God's instruction, it's not law, okay, as compared to how we need Yeshua. You need both. So in the written Torah, we have a problem. I won't go into it right now, I don't have to read it, because you'll remember it. In Genesis 6-5, here's the problem. Actually, Genesis 6-5 and Genesis 8-21. The problem is this. All men have an inclination to sin continually. It's repeated, all right? God says, I'm so sad. He's not angry. In Genesis 6, he's not angry. He's sad. So he said, I'm going to kill everybody. I'm done with it. God is kind of saying to us, this is the only way to get rid of this problem. And then he bumps into Noah. He was the only righteous man for his time. So he, Noah, based upon God's grace, got his wife, his three sons, and his three daughter-in-laws to be saved. 
because it doesn't say anything about them. So he's got his family saved. They go to the flood, right? Flood happens, da 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 Flood is over. There's eight people standing there. And what does God say to those eight? The inclination of man's heart is to sin continually. Guess what? Nothing changed. Nothing. The flood did nothing. Except one thing. How do we get rid of our inclination to sin? By destroying all of us. It's the only way. You sinners, you should all be killed because it's the only way to get rid of it. Well, sort of. There is another way. We'll come to that in just a second. Now, when you study Judaism, and when you study the Judaism of the Second Temple period, not Judaism today, don't get that. Judaism today is not what Jesus practiced at all, okay? At all. Oh, my goodness. I want to show you something, though. When you go into Judaism of the Second Temple period, the rabbis will teach that there are 36 transgressions for which there is no forgiveness. I've got them right here. And nobody teaches this. Okay, I have to study that. They're called karat. 36 of them. So in the Mishnah, it says, for these 36, the Torah provides no clearing, no sacrifice that will atone for the sins or restore fellowship. In other words, the Torah doesn't work to forgive sins and provide salvation. So when you go to a Jew and you say, yeah, we know you're saved by the law, they can say, what are you, crazy? There's 36 transgressions of which there's no forgiveness. No lamb, no bull, nothing. Transgressions that are committed wantonly, okay, intentionally, are subject to karat. If committed by mistake or in ignorance, a sin offering may be brought. Did you hear what I just said? If they're done unintentionally. Now do you understand Yom Kippur? Those are for unintentional sins, mistakes. Oops, I didn't realize that. But the ones that are done intentionally, intentional sin, okay, those cannot be forgiven. The Jews are teaching that. Rabbi Akiva, this is early 2nd century A.D., he's one of the big dudes, says this in a quote. No, yeah. Rabbi Akiva says, if those subject, if those are, uh, if those subject to punishment, okay, of karat, repent, the heavenly Beit Din court grants them remission. Akiva made it up. It is Akiva's opinion that if you repent, your intentional sins will be forgiven. The Torah does not say that. This is the Jewish concept of sin today, based upon what a rabbi said, not God. And that's where the Jewish people today would say, the Bible and the Talmud, their commentary on the Torah, stand equal. The rabbis speak for God. We don't agree. That's Akiva. That's second century, early second century AD. Now, I'm going to go to Rabbi Moshe ben Memon. You know him and probably heard of him as Maimonides. He is a great Torah scholar, late 12th century AD, 
And Maimonides says this, the more one confesses and elaborates on this matter, the more praiseworthy he is. And also those under an obligation to bring sin offerings and trespass offerings who bring their sacrifices for sins committed in error or willfully are not acquitted of their sins. He's gone a little bit deeper. Your unintentional sins are not forgiven. Unless you repent. The Bible doesn't say that. Maimonides says that. In other words, he agrees with Akiva. By the way, I want to let you know that there were a bunch of people running around in Akiva's day all over the place. And they were called the people of the way. And they said, because of the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus, you can repent and be forgiven. Oh, did you hear that? There's an added little caveat here. Repent, because Jesus is taking care of it already. That's happening during Akiva's time. And Akiva's got to answer to the Jewish people who are being deluged with all of a sudden this new teaching about this Jesus. So, that's Maimonides. Then we go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. And we read, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Wait a minute. Maimonides teaches that. Akiva teaches that. Now the writer of Hebrews is teaching that. It's not Paul and it's not Luke. Okay, We don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. Then he goes on to say, so the Torah doesn't do it. Verse 19, though, this is interesting. Okay, he doesn't leave us hanging. Listen to this. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. How do you get in? The blood of Jesus. So, from Maimonides, 12th century, to Akiva, 2nd century. From Akiva, 2nd century, to the writer of Hebrews, 65 to 66 AD. We don't know the exact year. What did they say? They all agree. The Torah cannot save. There's nothing in the Torah, no sacrifice, nothing. Akiva says, well, repent. It doesn't say that. He made it up. Maimonides said, repent. Sorry, it doesn't say it. The rabbis did. Now, you understand the Jewish position. Since the rabbis said it, the great Maimonides and Akiva, since it's a man, it's all they are is men. And they're making up their own rules. And the writer of Hebrews. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have one issue, the written word. There is no solution for the flood. No, there's no solution for the problem, okay? The flood is the solution. That's a one view, but there is another one, and it's called the gospel that's in the Torah, the good news, which is the answer to the problem. Where is the gospel in the Torah? Because we need an answer now. I can't wait for the right writer of Hebrews to write Hebrews. I need it now. Jesus said, John 5.39, the entire Torah and the scriptures testify of me. For me, ever since uh, 
I went to Israel and then to Turkey to the seven churches of the Revelation with the best teacher ever, Ray Vanderland. I, I just wish that you guys had the chance of being in Israel with someone like Ray Vanderland. I had other great teachers, Dr. Mosley, Dr. Billington, Dr. Ailing, just to mention a few. Dr. Wheeler, who taught me the Hebrew language Bible study skills, one of the most powerful graduate classes I've ever taken in my life. And with all of this, I can't believe how much we miss by not studying the Bible in its historical context. It's not taught in seminaries anymore, you guys. There's a few seminaries that do. A few. And most coming out of the seminaries today don't know any Hebrew, they don't know any Greek, they don't know the culture of ancient Israel. And biblical history is completely ignored. And I, I just can't believe it. Because once we go and see the truth of Jesus' words in John 5.39, all scripture testifies of me, he says. He says that between 24 to 30 A.D. And when we put the Bible in its historical context, we see the truth of his words. Jesus, the Lord, God himself, is teaching us. The Torah testifies of himself. The Torah contains the gospel, the good news of Yahweh's salvation, of Yahweh's Yeshua. Because many of you already know that the English word salvation, when we take it to the Hebrew, is Yeshua, Jesus' name in Hebrew. So we will continue to focus on the dream of Jacob and we ask our question or ask ourselves the question where is the gospel? Let's not wait to till we get to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Let's not wait for them to write their accounts. God never changes. He said it in Malachi 3:6, I am the Lord and I do not change. So has the Lord inspired Moses to teach the gospel? Is the Torah itself can it be called the gospel according to Moses you bet so I'm gonna see you in lesson 70 which is a dramatic lesson on the very words of God it's a powerful lesson to see Jesus that when he taught us John 539 that what he said was true Jacob's dream is a way that Torah takes us to Jesus the Torah takes us to the cross. So until then, Shalom be Yeshua, Melach ha Melachim, Adon ha Adonim, El ha Elim. Shalom in Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God of Gods.